So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the theme that we have been involved in since the first Sunday in January is entitled Covenant Relationships. And one of the relationships we've looked at in some detail is the marriage relationship because it is, as it were, the prototype of human relationships. And so some of you may remember that we began by looking at the basic blueprint for marriage that marriage that we find in Genesis 2 and which is repeated three other times throughout Scripture. Remember the one, leave, cleave, stick to, and become one, or conceive, as we kind of jokingly said. Leave, cleave, conceive. God is a God of order. And then a number of weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 5, verse 32, where we were reminded that in some profoundly mysterious way, this prototype relationship of husband and wife, this marriage relationship, is to reflect the relationship of Jesus to the church. So, in other words, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian husband, you need to take a close look at how Jesus related to the church and if you wanted to know what it means to be a Christian wife, you ought to take a close look at church's relationship to Jesus. And through it all, we've also been reminded of God's incredible love, even infatuation. Remember Pastor John's message on Song of Solomon, of God with his people. And now, this morning, as we bring this portion of the series to conclusion, since we're now getting set to head into the Lenten season, the cadet theme is next Sunday, but the 22nd of February, we enter into the Lenten season. But before we do that, I want to take one more look at our theme by focusing not so much on that word relationship as in the series title, but instead I want to focus on the word covenant. It's a word that we don't use very much in our everyday conversations, but it is an important word in the Bible, and it's a word that Christians use, that Christian couples use whenever they get married, certainly in this church. For example, when a couple gets married, we say from the marriage form, they covenant to live together in a lifelong, exclusive partnership of love and fidelity. Talk about a loaded sentence. At the time of the exchange of rings, each of the partners declares that the ring is exchanged as, I give you this ring as a symbol of our covenant in Christ. We speak then of marriage as being in terms of a covenant between, between a man and a woman. And the word covenant is a deliberately chosen word, not only because it adequately describes what's indeed happening at a wedding, but it is also chosen because it's a word that wonderfully describes the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And so when we talk about the relationship of Jesus and the church, God and his people, we often talk in terms of a covenant relationship. And so this morning, for example, as we gather at the table of the Lord, we are being reminded of the covenant relationship that the Lord has with us. 
the groom is the host, and we are the bride. But before going on, let me just say a couple things about what a covenant is. At its very root meaning, a covenant is an agreement or a promise. And this agreement or this promise is always made between two parties who then sign and seal your agreement in one way or another. And if you're doing the questions tonight, you're going to be looking at some of this, at some of this stuff and asked to, to kind of lay some of this out as well. So in all covenants, there are the partners, then there are the promises, and finally there's the sign. This pattern is one that's repeated time and again throughout the Scriptures. God is a God of order. So if you have your Bibles before you, if you go to Genesis 17, you can see it very clearly. Genesis 17, verses 7 and following. This is but one example. We read that the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham with the well-known words that we hear every time we have a baptism. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. So if you were to look at the elements of this agreement, this covenant of grace as it's known in Genesis 17, you would note that the partners are God and Abraham. And the promises you will notice in these, in these verses here include such things as, I'll be your God and the God of the following generations and the land of Canaan will be yours forever and such like promises. There's other things promised as well, like nations and kings will come to you, a reference not only to the likes of David or Solomon or the kingdom of Israel, but also a reference to Jesus and to all of his disciples or the whole Christian church. And then once God makes all these promises to Abraham, then you'll see that Abraham was obligated to keep my covenant, you and your descendants. In other words, be obedient to the agreement we just made. And then if you read on in Genesis 17, you'll read that the whole thing was signed and sealed in blood. Cut in blood. The circumcision was instituted as the sign of the agreement. If you were to continue in your Bible study, you could go to Exodus 19. You read about the covenant or the agreement made with Israel. The people had now arrived at Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt, and God once more approached his covenant partner. The promises of the covenant really didn't change any from the days of Abraham, but the, the obedience demanded of the Lord was now laid out in the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so you'll read that in Exodus 20 and following. And then finally, you have to go to chapter 25 to see the sign of the covenant. This covenant was signed or sealed with the sprinkling of blood, not only on the altar, but they took an awful lot of blood and they just sprinkled it over all of the people. Imagine that. What a mess that must have been. And a smelly mess in the Middle East in the heat. But you read all about that in Exodus 25. The partners, Israel 
and God. The promises, you're my nation. The obligations, the Ten Commandments. The sign, the blood, the sprinkled blood. There's another example of a covenant in the Old Testament, the one God made with the creation. After the flood, I will never again destroy the creation with the flood. So the partners, God and creation, the promise, I will never do this, destroy it again. And what was the sign? Many of you know it. The rainbow that God placed behind the throne. And he's reminded of that. And you go to the book of Revelation, you see that sign of the covenant there again in the book of Revelation. Now those are some examples. There's many more examples of covenant throughout the Bible. Now biblically speaking, covenant making was a serious event. Covenants were not made to be broken. Genesis 15 and a later interpretation by the prophet Jeremiah both teach us that covenants were considered so special, so binding, that if one of the partners to a covenant would fail to live up to their end of the bargain, the other partner would have the right to put the first one to death. In the Old Testament, one literally cut using a big knife, literally cut a covenant. And so one could literally, would literally be caught, killed, if they did not live up to the agreement. That's how serious it was. Now, we're not sure if it actually ever happened that someone was killed for not living up to the agreement, but you get the point about the seriousness of the covenant. We cut it. And you remember in one passage, there were the animals that were placed over, they were cut in half and placed over against, uh, against each other, and the blood flowed freely. And the point was, if you do not live up to this agreement, it'll happen to you like it happened to these animals. You're supposed to walk between the pieces. That's how serious this was. But you may remember from Exodus or Genesis 12, uh, Abraham was off sleeping someplace. There's no way he could walk through the pieces because he, could, he blew it already before he even started. But that's another sermon for another day. Now, obviously, the covenant relationship between the Lord and Abraham is on a different level than, say, the covenant relationship between Abraham and Lot. Any sort of covenant between Abraham and Lot would have been an agreement between equals. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, he was the initiator. He presented it. He made the promises and laid down the obligations. He instituted the sign. Oh, North American Christians in the 21st century get that. He instigated it. It came from him, not from us. We always want stuff to come from us. It comes from him. And knowing that there is simply no way in which Abraham and his descendants could live up to the agreement and understanding that if a covenant is not kept, the righteous partner would have the right to kill the guilty party, God saved his people from being cut by killing Jesus in our place. Abraham, you can't walk between those pieces because you're a dead duck before you even start but I'll walk the pieces in your place. So God established a covenant of grace with us. 
And it's by grace. And first of all, as sinful human beings, we didn't deserve any sort of relationship with the Lord. Secondly, we didn't deserve any, to have anyone else take our punishment or bear the consequences for our covenant unfaithfulness. And yet, out of His great love for us, because of His infatuation with us, in His overwhelming mercy, the Lord in Christ Jesus died for us, for all His people. That's what we're celebrating today as we come to the table of our Lord. We're celebrating God's covenant relationship with us. We're celebrating His amazing grace in Christ. And we are, you know, because that covenant language and that relationship that we read about in the Old Testament, we read about in Genesis and Exodus and so forth, carries on into the New Testament. Of course it does. God doesn't change. His relationship with His people doesn't change. And so if you can find it fast enough, in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, we read that the partners are still there, the promises are still there for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And the obligations of the covenant are still there. Repent, believe, live in thankful obedience. The partners are there, God and his people, God and the church. The promises are there, I'll give you the Holy Spirit and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. You'll be made new in him and so forth. And those promises are not only for you, but also for your children and all for who are far off, whom the Lord our God will call. And then comes the sign. And whereas in the Old Testament, whereas in the Old Testament, the covenant was always shields, sealed with the shedding of blood. You read about that. All those, those bloody sacrifices and, and circumcision, it was always in blood, blood being sprinkled all over the place. But now no longer is the knife needed. The knife has done its dirty work. Jesus' blood has been shed once for all. And the new covenant is signed and sealed now with water of all things and with bread, and with the fruit of the vine, which we see every time we witness or partake in one of the sacraments. And so if we think about God's relationship with His people even today, we think in terms of a covenant made between a heavenly groom, God, and an earthly bride, God's people, or the church. And the passage in Revelation 19 alludes to that. But now let me bring all of this back to the prototype relationship that we've been talking about, namely that of marriage. As mysterious as it may be, yet Ephesians 5 verse 32 suggests that the patterns for covenant making and the covenant of grace relationship which the Lord has with His people are somehow reflected in marriage. In a marriage, a man and a woman come together in the presence of God and witnesses and they face each other and they publicly make some promises to each other in the form of vows which are usually until death do them part, which we heard about last week. There is a permanency into this relationship. 
And to use the covenant scheme and the pattern modeled by the Scriptures, we see the two partners, a man and a woman. There are the promises. I promise to be a faithful husband, to be a loving and faithful wife as long as our lives shall last. And finally, there's the sign of the covenant made, the ring. Of course, now I can't get it off. I give you this ring as a symbol of our covenant in Christ. The partners, the man and the woman, the promises, the sign of the covenant. But even beyond the ring, there is the marriage bed, and there is intercourse. The ring and the physical union declare it is really so. There is a relationship here. The covenant has been sealed. And again, I trust you recognize the basic blueprint for marriage as we saw it a few weeks ago. Leave, be united, become one. First you need the partners, then the promises and the vows are made, and then the sign of the covenant is fulfilled. There's an appropriate order to all of this, and this is why the church has always held to the position that premarital sex is wrong. When we understand something about the covenant making, never mind all the other reasons, but when we understand something about covenant making, we gain some understanding for it. Intercourse is a sign that follows the covenant making. God did not cut a covenant with Abraham and then give him the promises. No, the covenant and then the sign and the seal. We tend to get that all mixed up, but the biblical pattern is partners, promises or covenant, and then the marriage bed. It's precisely because of this sequence of events that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? You see, having intercourse before marriage is putting things backwards. It's declaring that you are husband and wife even before you've made any commitments. It's like shaking on a business deal before you even know what the deal is. And the Bible, in setting out a lifestyle that reflects thanksgiving to the Lord that brings glory to His name, makes clear that sex is a gift to be saved for unwrapping at the appropriate time when indeed husband and wife become fully one. And it's a beautiful gift. And remember also that grace marked the covenant relationship that God had with His people. It's by grace that God chose His people. We didn't deserve to be in a relationship with Him, nor do we deserve, as it were, His constant care and love. That's why infant baptism is always so amazing. God says to this little kid who can do virtually nothing but make a mess, as many parents know, or make lots of noise, and God says to this little kid, you're mine, and it's purely by grace. You don't deserve it, but your mind. That's an amazing thing. Now that sort of relationship, that sort of grace ought to be characteristic of, of our relationships too. When we really think of it, it's by grace, undeserved merit that we kind of have the partners we do. I don't know why I have the wife I have. 
It often becomes a problem if we think that somehow our partners deserve us after all. Look at who I am. Look at what I'm able to do. Boy, you're lucky to have me. <laughs> no, we ought to look at our marriage partners and be able to say what the church says concerning Christ. It's by God's grace that we're together. It's by God's grace that we continue. And not only all this, but remember, that the, go- remember the goal of marriage God established the covenant with his people not because they were so beautiful or so righteous or, on the contrary, Israel was sinful, dead in trespasses and sins, says Ephesians 2. That's not very attractive. But Jesus gave his life for his bride, made her alive, and he gave his life to make her more beautiful. And again, when we carry this confident concept over to marriage, we come to realize that we really ought not to marry someone simply because of physical beauty. While it may attract, we know outward beauty is fleeting. Rather, part of the whole marriage process is making a decision concerning someone and then covenanting with that person to make him or her more beautiful in terms of their righteousness and their holiness before the Lord. Uh, The Bible teaches us a considerable amount about God's special covenant relationship with His people, a relationship that we're about to celebrate in the sacrament. This feast is a foretaste of what Revelation 19 celebrated. In verse 7 we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Isn't that cool? Because unlike many of our weddings, the bride seems to take the back seat to the groom in this particular celebration. That's the way it has been from the very beginning, and actually that's what makes this marriage relationship between God and His people so incredibly exciting. It's He who stands center stage. That's why we have this candle through this whole series. It's Jesus who stands center stage. It's his wedding. It's his feast. It's his reception. It's he who has done the inviting of the guests. It's he who invites us. It's he who gave his life for the likes of you and me for the bride. And somehow all of that is supposed to be reflected in the marriage relationship. Can you imagine? Man. How we blow that. That's indeed a profound mystery, perhaps somewhat overwhelming for us, but really if you think about it, if you think about that incredible, graceful relationship between God and His people, and then think that somehow marriage is supposed to reflect that, it only makes marriage all the more grandiose and exciting and wonderful and rich, and deep. So let's not mess it up. But let's seek also through our marriages to give God the glory. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, ah, what a foretaste. What a celebration. Welcome to the wedding feast. 
Amen.